Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on, of the land where we're recording. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here listening with us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter, Account Director at Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. October the 4th to 8th in 2021 is Malnutrition Week Australia, New Zealand. And this coincides with Malnutrition Week being run in the US and Canada. Now, dietitians know all about the problem of malnutrition in Australia, but most other people, including other healthcare professionals, don't really connect malnutrition with a developed country like Australia. The data we have tells us that around one in three adult inpatients in our hospitals are malnourished as are up to 50% of aged care residents and 40% of older adults living in the community. But today we're going to look specifically at nutritional issues faced by oncology patients who are at much higher risk of malnutrition due to both the combined effects of the cancer uh, and associated symptoms and the treatment they receive for that cancer. And we're really fortunate to have as our guests today, Teresa Brown and Chris Brady. Teresa is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian, assistant director of nutrition and dietetics at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, who's worked for many years in oncology and completed a PhD in the field of nutrition for patients with head and neck cancer. Chris is a specialist sports and exercise physiotherapist who's worked in the area of gymnastics, acrobatics and circus, which all sounds fascinating, as well as being the physio for a variety of national sporting teams. He spent the last decade travelling with Australia's premier motorsport team, Red Bull Racing Australia. And they would all be amazing topics to talk to him about. But the reason that Chris is speaking with us today is to share his experience managing his own nutrition through his battle with cancer. Just quickly before we get started, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only, and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. So thanks both of you for joining us today and welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Chris, if we can just start with you, Um, and as I said, I'd love to do the podcast to just spend time hearing about your work, particularly working with circus performers. That must be amazing. But we haven't got time, and for our listeners, most of whom are dietitians, um, I just think it's so valuable to hear the nutritional impact of cancer from the patient's perspective. So can you just tell us a bit about the background of your diagnosis and your treatment path? Uh, for sure. Uh, thanks very much for having me, and I hope this can provide uh, some degree of help, particularly from a clinician's perspective of then becoming a patient. Uh, I went from being over about a five-day period, a moderately fit, you know, was running 50 to 60 kilometres a week, 
uh, working in, uh, in the work we just talked about, uh, to uh, going visiting the dentist at nine o'clock one morning uh, and them saying, hey, by the way, I don't like the look of this. And over the period of the next three hours, I had a tongue biopsy, an MRI and three CT scans, uh, as well as an appointment then with a surgeon uh, for some advice about how to manage it. So uh, my world changed pretty drastically over that morning. And how long um, ago was that? About five months now. Right. Um, so, you know, to make the story sort of relatively short, there was a process of diagnosis and then planning the initial treatment. And I had surgery involving uh, a half vasectomy, half my tongue taken off, and, uh, and then an elective neck dissection. Uh, around here, um, as well as because I liked the idea of being able to talk afterwards, um, um, reconstruction of my tongue, which for me as a physio, I didn't want to use my forearm, I, I chose to use my anterolateral thigh. So over that period of surgery, I had, it was, which was about seven hours long, I had a tracheostomy, the neck dissection, the tongue taken off, the cancer removed, my thigh used to uh, replace my tongue, um, stitch it all back together. And then I woke up in ICU, um, you know, a couple of hours after the operation, having been someone who'd been in ICU as a clinician, uh, but never as a patient. And Chris, just for those listening, how old are you? I'm 52. And hopefully, okay. you know, I was a non-smoking, not particularly drinking, uh, you know, moderately fit, hard you know, semi-hardworking individual. Um, so, and then that is an incredible blessing. You know, if it means that I could look backwards on my athletic life as having been all just a good preparation for the fact that I was going to have a trackie and be in ICU for four days, um, you know, because I woke up and my lungs worked and I, and, and as well as that, as a clinician, I, I knew how to manage a trackie. I knew they were going to be trying to, you know, suction me out, which I didn't yeah. enjoy very much. Um, yeah, so, so you uh, had the ultimate in prehabilitation, really. Yeah, the ultimate, <laughs> I, not just from a knowledge perspective, but also I was very fortunate to be fit. Uh, and I think you've got to look at the fortunate. And you had no symptoms prior to going to the dentist? I had a, a small ulcer that had seemed to present itself. And that's what I, when I arrived at the dentist, and I'd been to the dentist a month beforehand and not then, then not noticed or may not notice anything. And they'd said, oh, we're going to do some, need to do some fillings. Let's organise an appointment in a month. So a month later, I rock up. And in the two weeks prior to the dent, to that appointment, I had had a small ulcer on my the, the top of my tongue, pardon me, that I had noticed. And, and so I led that appointment with, just before we start, I've got this ulcer I'd like you to have a look at. And within 30 seconds of her looking at the ulcer, she said, I don't like the look of that. And she has a colleague in her clinic who is a head and neck surgeon. Um, and he had a look at it and said, I think we should biopsy this straight away. Uh, and so they biopsied it straight away. And yeah, and I said to them, uh, you know, what do you think? What do you think it'll be? And they said, well, it'll be an SEC. And I said, well, what's the probability it would be? And they said, it'll be an SEC because mm. that, that's what they look like. Um, and so... And he was nice enough to say, I don't think I'll be able to cut it out, but I have a good friend uh, who works at the Royal Brisbane, whose name is Dr. Martin Batstone, who was just amazing and saw me in 36 hours after that story um, and was very calmly able to say, 
you know, let's get this thing cut out and move forward. And so how long were you in ICU for? Uh, four days in ICU. I woke up um, on the evening of the operation. I had expected that I would be sedated for a day or so. And uh, the briefing I got was that I my lungs were working so well that they couldn't see any reason to keep me asleep. So they let me wake up. And I, you know, woke up and had a pretty good lung volume straight away. And, you know, and I was relatively fit then and probably, you know, luckily 30 kilograms lighter than most of the other people in ICU. And, um, you know, so I spent the, the day one post-op, I spent nine hours out of bed sitting in, you know, sitting in a bed, despite having, you know, I had 10 different tubes and, you know, I was quite analytical about it. I woke up and asked my lovely wife to get me a pen and paper, um, so that I could start uh, writing things down. Uh, and I think I was very annoying to the people in ICU for the entire time I was there, but they were amazing. Um, I was about to say, were you the ideal patient or the horror patient? Uh, I think you can be both. And I was <laughs> certain that I was both. I was, uh, from a getting out of ICU perspective, I hopefully was pretty ideal. Um, and everybody that I've spent time with, including Teresa, who's been amazing for me, um, has uh, reminded me that I am uh, uh, remarkably ahead of schedule uh, on almost everything. And the entertainment is that that doesn't stop you being depressed. <laughs> no, no. So where did you first cross paths with Teresa? As I assume she was the dietitian that you came in contact with? or I, I, I was fortunate that I had met Teresa before in a previous, I, uh, I know her husband. And so when I found out that I was going to be unwell, I contacted her uh, and she contacted me as well and said, I don't know, you know, that that's I said to her, I'm unwell and I am going to be visiting your hospital. And uh, she was able to say, oh, well, I actually know about your case already um, because she had been in a meeting which had discussed my case. Um, so she was completely ethical about the process, but luckily enough able to then really early on say, hey, listen, um, you're going to need to be thinking about food uh, and nutrition in general right from the very beginning. So I think I was incredibly fortunate uh, to be able to have her overseeing care. I've seen a number of dietitians from the hospital, all who've been magnificent, um, who really have just helped guide me along the way from uh, from pretty much uh, after I got out of, both uh, in hospital and then after I got out of hospital. So did you have a tube to start off with? So I had an NG tube for a, the whole time I was in hospital. Uh, yeah, the, the idea of the, post the surgery plan for me was, give your mouth enough space to uh, recover. And so let's take breathing out of the story and nutrition out of the story so that and talking out of the story by giving your trackie and then that way you can recover. You can not feel like you're trying to use your mouth for too many jobs. That's uh, the discussion of the surgeon and I, I really liked it. And so I have a framework that I can, uh, that if it has any value for you, um, I have this idea that my tongue was used for 100 units of activity in life prior to uh, getting unwell. Um, and that early on post-surgery, my tongue had zero units of ability to do anything useful. Um, and, that, and, and this is a really important component. Talking, uh, swallowing takes about one unit of usefulness. So you can probably get 100 swallows per day, and that's about all you've got. Um, and talking takes about double that. So every time you start talking, it means you, you're stealing energy at a slightly faster rate. Um, and that taking food in by the mouth um, probably is about 10 times that amount. And, and it, that's a framework that 
I, I, nobody had told me that I sort of invented over the time post-operative. Um, and I like it because it really helps you understand that if I choose to spend my day talking, then I don't have any energy left with which to then feel very good about eating. And that means my energy levels become low and I get into a deficit. And that means that my tomorrow is going to be worse. So being really mindful about managing uh, the amount that I talk each day um, versus the amount that I then need to eat. And, and we'll talk a little bit about exercise as the journey goes along as well. Uh, trying to get that energy balance right is uh, at the very least a six-month project um, of which I'm at about the sort of, sort of four or five-month mark now. So, Teresa, did you want to make a comment about the role of the dietitian here? I was just going to ask him to really get Chris's perspective on how he felt when he had the nasogastric tube and was being fed artificially and then what that progression was like to actually starting to eat again because that's a very typical scenario for a lot of these patients who do undergo this kind of surgery. Yeah, thank you. Um, So I've got to place the caveat that, again, I don't think I was a very good patient. In ICU, I I had an nasogastric tube and I expected to, and a nasogastric tube is not uncomfortable at all. They did need to advance it. They didn't think they got it in the right place initially, so they needed to advance it to get it down proper. And that wasn't ideally something that I love, but I've done things that are much worse. Um, I had a trachea taken out, which isn't very pleasant. Um, So the NG tube being advanced was you know, a, a little uncomfortable, but having one in and being fed by it is really not a problem at all. Um, How I many think days that, did you have feeding by with the tube? Uh, something like 10, somewhere between 9 and 10, something like that. Um, and to be completely honest, I just think we got the rate wrong in ICU. And so I think I was, they were very nervous. I mentioned that I felt a little bit sick, uh, like I wanted to throw up at one point. Um and to, looking retrospectively, it's just because I felt pretty rubbish. Um, it was nothing to do with feeding or, but because you're lying down a lot of your time in ICU, they then got really nervous about the flow rate. So they kept my flow rate really low. And I think in in truth, that, that meant that I really just didn't get enough total nutrition for the mm. first four or four days or so. Yeah. So when I got out of ICU, I downloaded the manual um, of the how to advance the, uh, <laughs> the feeding tube so that I could, whenever the nurses weren't looking, I could advance it up. To, uh, and I, uh, so I'd had a conversation with Teresa about, uh, about and, and I'm fortunate to have a sports dietitian that I work with in my sport world. Um, and we had this sort of team talk about the fact that if the, real, if the reality of a gut is that it needs to, you know, we usually take food in bolus doses or nutrition in bolus doses so the gut can cope with it and it really isn't used to having uh, a completely being fed at the same rate all the time. <clears throat> Pardon me. So right from the word go, preoperatively, I had a, <clears throat> a vision that I might make it run really fast for short periods of time <clears throat> and then let it run really slowly overnight in case... Uh, in case I felt annoyed by it overnight. And that's pretty much what I did the whole time in hospital. I advanced it up to a 1,000 or as high as it would let me push buttons to. um, And then when the nurses came in, I dropped it back down to 50. um, And they said, oh, jeepers, you're getting through your nutrition really quickly. And I said, yeah, I don't know, maybe a fault in the machine. (laughs) um, and, uh, and, And it is a conversation that I think is worth having, is this idea of, 
um, being not being frightened as long as you, your body can cope, and my body coped with being fed at quite a rate for some periods of time, and then having some time later where you where you're right, particularly when you're asleep, because when you're upright and you have an energy tube in, you can smash the the rate up really high. But when you're lying down and you're horizontal, and when you're lying down and you're horizontal, and you've just had the operation that I'd had, and your tongue and your mouth is completely swollen, and breathing is hard anyway. And it's really worth noting that just it took me probably four or five weeks to be able to lie down horizontal, maybe even longer, six weeks um, before, because lying down essentially meant that I felt like I was choking. Um, so I slept pretty much upright for the first six weeks. And radiation is a story in itself where you're essentially lying down on your back dead flat. And if they can figure a way to do it on a non-dead flat scenario for people yeah. who are newly post, it was probably the most confronting thing about radio radiation therapy was lying down on my back until I got to a point where lying down on my back wasn't that bad. And, you know, lying down on your back with a tube in your mouth as a radiation story wasn't very pleasant anyway. And you, you basically get better at it, but you get better at it because you work yourself psychologically to get better at it. Yeah. Um, and if I return back, well, uh, well, just that that whole aspect of um, in, returning to that in-hospital story, I think being able to have a, a rate of an NG tube that is high when you're upright and then feeling confident then that you've got enough in that you could have it a little bit lower overnight is not something that I was talked about by anybody at the hospital, but because I'd had uh, the great luck of having a relationship with Teresa and and some other dietitians as well. Uh, I think that's certainly something that's worth discussing with the right kind of patient. Yeah, and we'll get on to your transition to actual food again in a minute. But Teresa, can you just give us um, an idea of why it is so important to have dietetic input? Um, because obviously there's so many assaults to the sorts of um, path that Chris was going through, the surgery, the cancer itself, the radiotherapy, the drugs, that's the the um, reconstruction of the tongue. Like there is so much um, going on to the body. What's the role of dietetic care for someone mm. like this? So I think this is definitely one of the cancers where a dietitian is critical um, across all phases of treatment. So at that diagnosis stage, to make sure there's no deficits at the start, because a lot of patients can actually present with symptoms when they start. So they may already have some swallowing difficulties. Um, you know, loss of appetite and things even before they get diagnosed. And then it's supported them through the surgery phase. Um, and as Chris has talked about, we are highly involved in prescribing the nasogastric feeds and to ensure that the patients get enough energy and protein um, post-operatively when their nutrition requirements are higher. And then again, supporting in that phase of transitioning to oral intake in conjunction with our colleagues um, in speech pathology um, who look at the safety of the swallow and the progress and the rehabilitation of that. And then again, there's very good high-level evidence to support the role of the dietitian in providing nutrition counselling throughout radiotherapy, again, to help manage the side effects um, and to really prevent malnutrition, which is obviously what we're talking about today, um, because we do know that malnutrition can have a number of adverse effects on patients' quality of life and also clinical outcomes as well. They're more likely to get admitted to hospital, have other complications, um, sometimes it even impacts on their ability to complete treatment as well. Um, and then, of course, once treatment's finished, we still continue to play an active role as well in rehabilitating patients after the treatment um, and progressing them back to 
a good oral intake again. So the risks if if a patient doesn't get good nutritional care um, during this whole pathway is that potentially they go home and they come back to hospital, they don't tolerate treatment as well, they have to stop treatment maybe for periods. Um, So basically you can't provide the best oncology care if you're going to be malnourished. Is that right? Correct, yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a real fundamental. I I lost about five or six kilograms um, in, in in that in hospital experience, especially because uh, that early time I just didn't get enough food in. Um, and so I, I was able to, and I'm really just um, um, cheering for what you just <laughs> said, Teresa, that sense of um, post-initial operation, but before radiotherapy, there are, there are, the dietetics team was so critical for me with a, hey, Chris, you've lost weight, you're going to lose weight in radio, radiation and beyond. And so you want to have this whole project. We had this whole project set up of let's get um, better from a nutrition perspective, almost as a goal for starting radiation. So I had a bet with the, um, with the dietitian that I could get to my preoperative weight uh, before my radio, radiotherapy started. And I didn't quite make it, but I got there by the second week of radiation. Um, and and that, the reason I bring that whole story up much as the entertainment of a bet was that the nutrition advice that I got given for the project of getting ready for radiation therapy was a very different piece of nutrition advice than that which we now have in a post-radiation. I lost seven kilograms in radiation um, and and I'm now on the journey of getting that back. But the kind of advice that I'm being given, I think very appropriately, is really different, and therefore the unique and individualised nature of those uh, pieces of advice are absolutely critical to the journey. So I, I'm putting both hands up in the air mm-hmm. for every step. It's, it's been the clinician that I have spent the most time with in my whole journey has been the dietetics team, um, and so I can't advocate more for it. And what, what was the period of time between surgery and radiotherapy they don't like starting before six weeks, so they generally give you six weeks. I happened to uh, get better relatively quickly, um, and as a result, they started mine at about the four and a half week, um, and that is probably why I lost my bet with your team, Teresa, yeah. is that I, I didn't have enough time. week. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but, you know, if I remove the humour from the story, um, the idea of just, uh, I mean, if, as someone who gets cancer, you start reflecting on Jeepers, one, why did I get it? And what can I do to help me sort of manage long term? The kind of nutritional advice you're getting appropriately is all the, you know, eat the right kind of leafy greens and sort of long term, the stories that you'd picture. But of course, so I sort of led with that saying um, post, uh, post-op when I got out of hospital, shall I just go into that mode for which they were... Absolutely. They were not saying that I should not do that. They just said, but also you have a job right now and that is you need to put weight on. So you need to be adding with supplements in various different ways. And I went from a three meals a day plan to a five meals a day plan where I was using smoothies as bonuses for you know, and, and they would say things like, if you need to put, you know, Tom and Tom and Ben and Jerry's ice cream into uh your into your smoothie just so that you get extra calories. Uh, that was a that was a real sort of a process 
and leading up to radiation and even through radiation that we are now not doing because now I'm, I'm not in a dangerous setting from a weight perspective and we would like to now be learning and, and reminding ourselves these long-term style goals. So my nutrition program now post-radiation is really different from the one that we had in that five-week window. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because a lot of the hype around diet and cancer is more about prevention and reducing your risk. So the sort of clean eating type, I guess, thinking of, you know, all fresh foods and, and, you know, which are obviously all beneficial, but they are not for the post um, surgical recovery or the, if you're managing weight loss, you're going to be very stretched to try and get the amount of calories you need from that sort of a diet. So it's quite different, isn't it? That treatment sort of, I guess, if you want to call it a treatment type diet versus prevention or long-term rehab. You're totally right, Jane. And that, that, uh, pre and then during radiation therapy uh, nutrition program was quite bespoke for that time. And it, it doesn't mean, just as you alluded to, it doesn't mean that I wasn't thinking about long-term well-being and cancer managing processes. It's just that I was, and the way that we framed it was, you might have three meals a day that are the having these beautiful soups and minestrones that have vegetables in them. Um, as an example, but that as well as that in your in-between meal smoothies that you might have, and they might be 1,000-calorie smoothies where you might just have ice cream in them. She whispered to me, if you need to go to KFC on your way home from the hospital one day, then just do. Um, That was, to me, quite a surprising uh, uh, concept to be allowed to do that. To be honest, I didn't because because I couldn't eat it anyway, um, because I couldn't get it in. But the idea that you could be allowed to was good. And was so was calories your primary focus or was it protein or what was your sort of, what were you looking at? So weight gain was the process and as a result, calories was an important tool. But like we, all three of us as clinicians are, we shouldn't have only one thing as only one. We certainly had protein as a major player. And if I add, uh, particularly because I'm a sports physio, the idea of um, managing activity processes along the journey, I have been careful. Uh, They said to me, I saw an, an... exercise physiologist to help me who was a cancer specific one and I asked her before just before I started radiation therapy I asked her to give me a an exercise program and she gave me this very easy I mean I was pretty well then she said she gave me this program and I said okay that looks pretty good so shall I come in in three weeks and you can advance it for me (laughs) and she said no 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 you're just going to try to hold on to that and you're going to get worse and worse and worse and you're not even going to be able to do this program in six weeks' time. And, of course, that utterly blew my mind and I really wish I didn't have to say that she was completely right, but she was completely right and not just in the six weeks of radiation, but I'm now about six weeks post-radiation and I still can't do that program uh, without it really taking the wind out of my sails. So... I think it's an under, if I think, if I think like a, uh, a patient versus what I thought was the case as a clinician, uh, it has stolen so much more of my ability to do stuff than I possibly could have expected. Um, and that therefore nutrition programs that are designed to develop around managing that 
where calories is an important player, but the protein is a really important player. Um, you know, and of course, all of the micronutrients as well. And, and the teams have been just, I've been really impressed by the nature of dietetics as a profession. In, in, in you know, I just, it was designed for people who get head and neck cancer. <laughs> so if we take a step back a bit, did you have to start on a texture modified diet when you first introduced food after the nasogastric <laughs> tube? Did you say, did I, or did I want to? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, did you have to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't want the thing, let me tell you. It, um, so, yes, is the short answer. Um, it, as per my story of um, feeling like I had been slightly under uh, nutrient uh, or calorie-driven mm. in ICU, I was looking at the water bottle that the nurse who was looking after me was drinking, and I remember thinking, I just so wish I could have a, a drink of your, you know, you become so much more... Um, aware of the very basic things in life and that even, and, and for you, if any of the person listening to this is ever working with someone who is early post out of hospital from head and neck cancer, just a drink of water is two things. One, so like Christmas, like it's like the most amazing thing you could possibly have when you've had an NG tube for a period of time. And yet it is so incredibly difficult to actually have, you know, so that first even sip of water, you know, four fifths of it dribbled out the corner of my mouth. And, you know, it was, it is like childhood all over again, except with the cognition of an adult. So it's incredibly frustrating and, you know, potentially embarrassing. Um, and yet you, you really want just the very basics of some water or anything that I might have that might be a liquid. I was extremely sensitive to temperature. And so it's something we should all be a little bit more mindful of is that, that you know, there are lots of things that play, not just in the very early time, water that is room temperature water is heaven. Um, and even even it is hard. And then cold water is pretty good because it's that anti-inflammatory aspect to a very swollen mouth. Um, but anything like anything remotely warm. And, you know, in the hospital, they're trying to give you the 1950s tea and coffee, and you know, and your brain's just going. And so I was very thankful that I had um, access to the dietetics advice um, even at that time uh, because, because you're just going back to such a basic level. So was it? Obviously, your tongue is, you know, got problems going back to normal function. So getting food in your, like in your mouth, I mean, part of the swallow process is getting it yeah. into that bolus. But was your actual swallow affected as well? Like was water I, a dangerous really thing or not? All right. No, for me, it was, there was no sort of, uh, yes, I occasionally when I was moving too quickly would, uh, would, would have troubles, but my swallow was really good really early. And so if you imagine that I'm having this conversation with you both and I was just spectacularly lucky and really in a good place right from the beginning um, that I had a pretty good swallow. And yet I can tell you, like, your tongue is so swollen that the amount of space mm. left to get air in, let alone food or drinking, is tiny. And it's completely numb. And the entire side of your cheek down to here, like, is, I'm still pretty much numb from here to here, that that whole process is so foreign and so frightening. You know, I'm only just at a point where using a fork is not a scary thing. I've been, I, uh, in my return to utensils, 
I started with a child's teaspoon um, that was rubber because I was so nervous about banging into my mouth mm. in a way where I couldn't feel in my mouth. Um, and then moving from the, the rubber spoon to a small spoon and then to a slightly, you know, eating out of a spoon where a fork where a fork, and I'm talking even at three months in, I didn't really, I still don't really like using a fork very much other than as a shovel. I don't like the idea of sticking the pronged end bits in my mouth. So and are I'm, you, and I'm back, lucky. are you back to n- normal, I call it normal texture food? Like uh, it, It's up and down. I mean, as I said, I'm about four or five months now and I, I, Basically got pretty good at eating before I started radiotherapy. So I was eating, um, if if being able to eat Doritos with the triangle, you know, uh, shard of death is my ultimate worst possible thing I could think of eating because it's got spiky edges on it. Um, and if I regard that as 100, I'm probably eating at 60 at the moment. And I probably was eating at about 60 uh prior to starting radiotherapy and I, and for the first part of radiotherapy before I lost taste, um, I was okay. Um, uh, maybe about the four week mark of radiation of a six week radiation block for me. Um, uh, it started to get a little bit weird. And if I describe that for your people, what happens when you, when of a tongue in particular, but I mean, they, they're radiating for me, the whole left-hand side. So it's, the best way to describe how it needs to feel early is at the beginning, you feel nothing, but then you will all have had an experience in your lives where you went to the beach and it was a really sunny day and you didn't have enough sunscreen on and you could tell that you were getting burned. You could feel that you were getting burned, but, and, and hopefully if you're a clever person and you're at the beach, you get out of the sun or you put sunscreen on. But in this circumstance, you're, you're tied to a chamber locked in with something holding onto your tongue. So you know that you're getting burned. Um, but you are sort of in this weird space where you don't do anything about it. And the burn is not just a skin burn. The burn is, it's not only ju- not just, but you're almost primarily being burned. You can feel it as a patient. I am being burned on my tongue and my tongue is sort of tingling and then thick and sort of swollen and then doesn't work quite as well. And so your speech and your swallow, everything goes backwards then. Uh, it, the, the radiation therapy experience was of very, uh, I would really encourage you to get your dietetics team. Your one of your questions might be, "What would we do in a moving fu- in a future?" I'd probably have the dietetics team involved. Uh, in I had weekly experienced dietitians uh, all through the radiation therapy time, and I probably could have done with it for the four weeks prior to radiation therapy beginning. As a hey, this is what you feel like now. The better you can get, you're going to lose it. So the better you can get now, the better you can know how to get back again as a radiation um, therapy management process. And Chris, can I just ask as well, I think throughout your radiotherapy, I think you did pretty well in maintaining your nutrition and your weight throughout that phase, but then you lost more weight once radiotherapy finished. Beautifully said. Yeah, what happened in that time for you? I think there's there's two parts to that puzzle. One is physical and one is psychological. Yeah, I'm I'm entertainingly at a point where I I mean as a as a physio clinician who looks after people who might have a thing that they're looking after for that takes a year an ACL reconstruction. I we have always historically noticed that people sort of lose energy somewhere between that four and six month mark mark as if 
as if it's really, it's really easy, respectfully, to get a diagnosis and go, I've got to get ready for surgery. And then I'm in ICU and I've got to figure out how to get out of ICU. And then I'm out of ICU and I have to figure out how to get out of hospital. And as you touched on, I'm before radiation therapy and I need to get fit and well for radiation therapy. And then you're having radiation therapy and you've got to get yourself to the end of that. And I think two things happen. One is that radiation therapy for a tongue is pretty mean and your tongue doesn't work very well and nor do your ability to swallow and nor does. And you you basically burn the inside of your esophagus. So, you know, I've had experiences since where I um, completely inappropriately, but I love bagels and I love bagels and poppy seed. And so I, I put on a bagel and poppy seed and uh, and then I tried to eat the smallest morsel of it. And essentially, I felt like it was akin to swallowing sandpaper and running sandpaper off mm. the entire inside of my esophagus. And for the next four days, uh, whilst my whilst my um, throat recovered, I and, and I'm a little bit at that right now, is that you just go through these periods where you just get eat the wrong thing once and you spend the next four or five days going, oh, I totally shouldn't have done that. And as much as your brain goes, oh, no, 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 I know the right thing to do is to stick to a soft diet. I think if I never have a smoothie again in my entire life, <laughs> it, I'll be really happy because five months of smoothies is, is enough. So, and during the time, I imagine there was never a time that you had a great appetite. I can't imagine that you're feeling really hungry. Uh, good question. I, I I think there are two parts to this puzzle. Um, there is the um, the mind saying I need to get get nutrition in, and there is the um, the appetite. Oh, I feel like having a chocolate bar. And I've always, you know, and this is really important. I, as a human, have always prided myself in no, no, no. I'm not an appetite person. I'm a hunger person, and if I'm hungry, I'll eat. And that's, I can tell you at this point in the puzzle, complete rubbish, because <laughs> when I lost taste, um, which was about the sort of four-week mark of radiation therapy, I, my, well, two things. That is a fascinating, we could spend the whole hour talking about that because that is just amazing experience um, where I've got a little bit of taste back, um, but I have practiced and learned, and Teresa has been amazing support to me in uh, new ways to think about that. But in answer to your both of your direct questions, um, I was surprised to find that losing appetite stopped me feeling like eating. And there are two parts to that. One is that I felt sick eating any food that was sour in any way that had anything that would use a sour receptor. My salt receptor just went do, 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 from 10 down towards zero slowly. My uh, bitter receptor was probably last to go, and so I can enjoy pretending to like coffee for a while. Um, but I really like Asian curry kinds of things. And there was this evening where we had a meal and I was having a curry, and I just all of a sudden thought that my curry was, well, we must have done something wrong with it, and everybody else's curry must have been good. Um, and it was fascinating. I was asking other people to taste, but mine's no good um, because the moment that you lose that, and in particular when it makes you feel sick, which is uh, that whole next step. I just basically went, well, I'm, you know, I've in my head, I and I, I'm embarrassed to say that I talked to the dietetics team and said, I've probably got five kilos I can lose here in the next five weeks and still remain, let's call it semi-safe. And I'm totally sick of 
eating and drinking just because I should. Um, and I just really sort of lost my way a little bit there. Even as someone who was a pretty upbeat kind of character, I just stopped feeling like eating and drinking. And, and how just, did you turn that around? Because that, I imagine, is an incredibly common feeling. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, it, you know, if there are patients listening to that story, um, you know, fair play. It is a really difficult process and it involves need for psychological support and sometimes need for a bit of tough love. Teresa's dietetics team have uh, given me the pointy finger, um, uh, which which was completely and utterly appropriate um, to say, I know you don't feel like eating, but just get it in, put it in. And, and I know you don't, I know you don't feel like having a smoothie. So change it up and have a different smoothie, except that. Um, and so there was a really critical moment that happened uh, that is really worth saying. Um, I am incredibly fortunate that I know some clever people, including a friend who was a ex Olympic gymnast and she and I had had all these conversations about food when she was an athlete. Um, and she had said to me, I, I just remembered that she had said to me a long time ago, you need to change your relationship with food from being just about the getting it in to being about the whole process of going to the shop and smelling the fruit and buying it and cooking. And the, so the olfactory sense as much as any of the intake sense. And I remember that story. So I contacted her and she was um, just incredibly valuable to me. Um, she sent me some um, bubble tea, a, a pack to make bubble tea, because, of course, the bubble tea experience is textural as well as olfactory. And so I, I really, so the answer to the turnaround question is I started going to the shops and taking real pride and interest in the process of buying food. And smelling food, for example, I had some, my family had a lamb roast the other night and I can't taste it. Um, and so, but we have rosemary in the garden and I've always associated rosemary with roast lamb. So I, I got some rosemary and I basically um, put it next to the plate so that I could smell the experience. And, and my, my smell has become vastly better, um, like better than it's ever been in my whole life. Um, and But to be able to utilise that as a next phase of the journey, particularly in the period where taste um, uh, doesn't work. Yeah. So it's a matter um, for looking at other ways to, yeah. I guess, get your motivation up around it and whether that's the shopping experience or making the most of your sense of smell rather than taste, it's a little bit of I just have to do this anyway, but also yeah, finding then, ways to enjoy it. Jane, you're completely right. There's, that, there's two bits. In a nutshell, there's two bits. Suck it up, princess, and but think outside the box. And I think that's where you guys as brilliant clinicians and supporters to us as patients, that ability to be able to uh, give, here are lots of different new ways that you can do it is really, really, really important. Because lots of people wouldn't have been lucky enough to have had the kind of people that I've been lucky enough to have around. So what would you say to uh, someone who's going through this that doesn't necessarily? So obviously you've got part of the knowledge because you've, you've been interacting with people who are interested in nutrition over the years and you're able to access dietetic care really early in your um, progress in your cancer, which I guess a lot of people aren't necessarily, don't have access to those services early. So if, if you were talking to someone who is about to start their treatment path, but 
don't have the sort of resources that you've had, what would you suggest to them? I think on those two key themes, one is that you need to have that the body can't live without the mind. And I, in a real nutshell, this whole experience for me has been vastly more, you know, if we pretend that it's 90% mental, it's more than 90% mental. If you've got the right um, way of thinking about it, then everything is doable. You just decide to get up in ICU and walk even though you don't feel like it and you just decide that it's going to be fine to get them to pull the drain out of the back of your neck even though you don't feel like it. Yeah. And you just decide that you're going to have smoothies 740 times over a three-month period <laughs> even though you don't really feel like it. Well, we'll be looking forward to your um, smoothie recipe book. Um, yes. <laughs> but so in terms of um, dietitians uh, providing care, do you have any sort of tips for dietitians who are working in this area on ways to approach patients or ways to just have these discussions with patients? I think I'd like to start with a, a higher up tier, which says from an advocacy point of view, I think your profession and I'd be really happy to support it, could really loudly advocate for even uh, having the, the, the dietitian visit in ICU and, and be able to be there in that in-hospital situation to be able to describe um, here's what's going on and that you're then going to have this window of time, whether you have chemo or radio, because you're, they're both going to make you feel pretty horrible. Um, and I didn't have a chemotherapy experience and blessed to those who did. Um, but I bet they're going to have some story that's not dissimilar from a, a period where you're post-hospital and pre-commencement of that treatment. And you, and you need some advice at that time, which I was lucky enough to get, but that I don't think is necessarily on the, uh, on the Everybody Gets It program. And even if it's in a telehealth setting or, you know, the, the idea of being able to talk to people who, can, who are experts, particularly in the field of head and neck cancer, which I've been fortunate enough to have, uh, but then if I drop down to the level of as a clinician, that, that the ability to have different themes for different components, for example, just put on weight, Chris, in the preparation for radiation therapy, as opposed to the, okay, now we're going to think uh, long-term well-being, um, uh, management or prevention of future cancer story. Um, but as well as that, there's that interim period where probably two things are going on where I'm at now where you have lost both any sense of energy to continue to fight and where you don't have any taste. And being able to think outside the box when people don't have taste, to use other senses, whether it be touch, whether it be to do with the preparation of the meal themselves, I found that to be extremely valuable. And, and I don't think beyond the scope of the dietitians to offer as advice. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because that loss of taste is not uh, specific to um, oncology patients. So obviously you're talking older population, a myriad of drugs that people might be on for other things, impact on taste and all of those things, as you've so well described, have a huge impact on your food intake. So Teresa, did you have something to add there? I was just going to touch on the point um, about that gap between having the surgery and starting radiotherapy because that is something our team here at Royal Brisbane have discovered through doing some further research in this field. Um, so one of my PhD students actually did a qualitative study to look at patients, basically their experience of their nutrition care throughout their trajectory of treatment and really found that that gap was in that period that Chris just 
basically spoke about. So I guess it's an area that I think we do need to focus on and, you know, put some more energy into trying to get some more resources in that field. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Teresa, just so on that point of resources for dietitians who um, are working in oncology or maybe new to the area, what are the best resources for them to access to help them deliver the, the care that they should be? Yeah, so we do have a number of um, evidence-based guidelines for our practice in oncology. So there are some guidelines endorsed by Dietitians Australia um, for radiotherapy and chemotherapy management. And through the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia, we also have specific nutrition guidelines for head and neck cancer. Um, they are on a website, so we do continually add to them as new evidence evolves. Um, so they are a really good resource to tap into. Um, and the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia also does have a position statement on how to manage cancer-related malnutrition and sarcopenia and gives you tips on how you should be looking at screening and assessing patients um, going through that cancer journey. So that'd be my top tips. We'll put links to those in the show notes that go with this podcast. So any dietitians who are listening or anyone who's listening can um, see where to go to find those. And we're just about out of time and I've got probably enough questions for a second podcast. But to wrap it up now, Chris, is there anything that you'd like to say about your particular um, path, treatment, intervention, anything that we haven't covered that you would just like to communicate? Uh, only a simple statement that, as I touched on moments ago, the dietitians that I have spent time with have been the pretty much the central source. I've seen them more than I have seen any of the other uh, people. So they are vastly more than just a resource for help about uh, intake of food. They've been they're in part they're, pl they're playing a psychological support role. They've just been absolutely magnificent. So uh, for anyone who is a dietitian who is ever questioning whether or not what they do is amazing, I I couldn't have gone through this journey without them. Well, thank you. I'm sure that um, warms the hearts of dietitians listening um, because, uh, as you mentioned, sometimes dietetic care is lower down the priority list uh, in some of these multidisciplinary areas, but that's really good good to hear and I'm pleased that they've helped you. Um, and so I just want to finally thank you both for giving us your time today. Um, I think for a healthcare professional, there's really nothing more powerful than hearing the firsthand experience. Um, and Chris, I think your story will help us all to improve our care going forward. So thanks so much for your time today. Um, I really, really appreciate it. No worries at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.